Hello and welcome to Can I Ask You a Personal Question Uncut? This is a sister podcast to the normal episodes where every fortnight we'll be giving you the raw, unedited conversations with our interviewees. This week's episode is with Jimmy Mulville, TV writer and producer and co-founder of Hattrick Productions. As this is unedited, you may find that there is a bit of swearing here and there. If you're enjoying our podcast, please let us know by leaving a review and a five-star rating, because it'll really help us out for the future. On to the podcast. Enjoy. Okay, we're recording. And uh, what's it called on here again? Voice recorder. That's great to hear your voice again. <laughs> it's been a while, hasn't it? It's been a while. It yeah. After the you. roaring success of season one, we're back again. And this time it's With a boom. <laughs> yes. Oh, actually, oh, sorry. Um, say that again if you want. Because <laughs> I interrupted you. That's a pretty good I, line. I don't, think it was, <laughs> I don't think it was good enough to make it into the final cut. This time it's personal. I think it's definitely <laughs> going to go in. Final Luke. Oh, definitely going. <laughs> who are we speaking to this week? Uh, Jimmy Melville. Oh, is, of course. Who is the co-founder and managing director of Hattrick Productions, which is a TV production company but, uh, behind Have I Got News For You, Father Ted, Outnumbered, Room 101, The Worst Week Of My Life, and many more. Oh, oh cool. A lot of very well-known shows then. That is Hi, interesting. Hello. Hi, hi there. Hello. I am sorry, I was having problems. I was being confounded by technology for a second or two there. Oh, no problem at all. Um, Which is weird. I've been living on Zoom for the last six months, but nevertheless. (laughs) It's one of those things, isn't it? Even though we've been all using it for six months, it feels like no Zoom or Hangouts meeting ever goes right the first time. There's always something that needs to be fixed or someone's muted. It's very interesting, you know, I, I did a meeting up with Amazon and they insisted I use a thing called Chime. Have you used Chime? I have used Chime, yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't, I, we were, I was in a waiting room, wasn't I, Leo? And I, I couldn't get out of the waiting room into the next <laughs> room. So, Are you like sure they just didn't want to let you in? Game. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, just before you get started, Jimmy, um, we were hoping you could record your audio. Um, if you're yeah. able to on your yeah. Mac, can you open QuickTime? Probably yeah. the easiest way to do that is to search it um, yeah. in the search bar. Yeah, QuickTime player. Where'd it go? Cool. Hang on. OK, QuickTime player's come up. OK, then uh, file in the top left-hand corner. Just doing it online. I've and got, then, um, hang on, top left hand corner. Oh. Uh, so, yeah, file and then new audio recording. Um, I can't see. Is it the word file I'm looking for? Yeah, um, uh, you know, at the very top left, uh, in the, you've got the little app. Yes, yes, thing. yes. And then if you go new along. Audio recording, got it. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then just make sure you press go. Okay. Are we recording? It looks like it because when I'm speaking, Great. it's modulating. Great. That's perfect. Perfect. Do you um, want to test it or, or are you happy to go? 
No, I think I think that should be fine. Um, to be honest, we have done we have done interviews. I was saying to Leo before we've done a few interviews in the past without this. Uh, it's just when we can do this, it's really good and adds to the quality. I think. Um, so yeah, um, we really appreciate that. And if you could send it to us at the end, that would be perfect. Okay. And uh, it's good for you as well because it kind of ensures that we won't ask you too many awkward questions that you don't like. <laughs> I, don't mind, I don't mind awkward questions if you don't mind awkward answers. Perfect. So you've just been in France, have you? And now you're quarantining. I'm coming to the end of my um, self-isolation. Yeah. Yeah. Is how's that? How's that been? Well, of course, I, I you know, I, I, I had the virus in March, and so I was actually pretty much oh, really? isolated with my family, albeit with my, my wife and I had it quite badly. Mm. And our three sons had it mildly. And, and I, I've got to tell you, I quite like self-isolation. I quite, I quite enjoyed it. I quite enjoyed mm. the simplicity of it. And then when we were allowed to go out for an hour, I loved being in the middle of London with no people around. Mm. I'm not very fond of people. So <laughs> it, was very, it was very good that there were no people around, just me and, and my dogs and the fresh air, and we jumped on these um, bikes that lie around London and cycling around Hyde Park Corner with no traffic, six lanes around Hyde Park Corner. Mm. It felt like I was in a Steven Spielberg movie. I was like a kid on a bike, just weaving along all these lanes with no traffic. I thought, I'll never do this as long as I live. So there were, there were lots of silver linings to the <laughs> lockdown. And I know it was yeah. tough on some people, but yeah. being in a, I guess being in a family, as well, it was helpful that we had our children, I say children, they're 21 and 20 and 16, and my mm. daughter's in Miami. Um, it was quite nice, actually, because every evening, they, they, we'd, we'd all go off and do our own things, and you know, I'd come into my office here and work on stuff, and, and when, when the evening came, we'd all enter the kitchen like animals coming to a watering hole, you know, looking for food. <laughs> so we'd settle down, cook some food, eat some food, have a chat, watch a movie. It was quite a night. I enjoyed the rhythm of it, really. I mean, I'm, mm. I'm very eager to get back to work next week. I'm yeah. at the end of my six months where I think I, now I'm, I'm eager to get a bit of office culture back going in my life. Yeah, um, you must feel slightly... Um, so you had, it, you had coronavirus quite badly then? Well, not... I say it was moderately bad. I mean, yeah. certainly I didn't go to hospital. I didn't want to go to hospital. My breathing... Uh, in the second week, it's where the kind of the breathing starts to go. So my wife and I experienced very bad breathing in the second week, but we managed to stay out of hospital, which I was very grateful for. And, um, mm. and then it left us, I would say day 16, 17, it kind of left. And then, um, then it was just the fatigue really. Mm. Um, and my wife, um, still experiences an impaired taste and smell six months later. Really? Wow. That's not very nice. Um, okay, Jimmy, so um, I think uh, usually the way we kick off our interviews is we just kind of like to get an idea of um, where people have come from and try and yeah. try and work out where they came from before, the, before they kicked off their entrepreneurial career. So um, from my background research, you're from Liverpool. Um, I am you, Liverpool. You, uh, your your mum, uh, I think I read this interview, your mum was a, a waitress, your dad worked in a, in a factory in Liverpool, you yeah. went to a comprehensive, and then you went to Cambridge. Um, I did. So that must have been quite, I mean, um, I might presume that, that that must have been a bit of a, you must have been a bit of an outlier there. Um, well, it was, it was, just, it was a, yeah, it was an odd experience. Um, my mum and dad, um, as you said, they were the classic, what you would call, I don't know what you call them now, but in those days, the demographic were kind of, you know, working class. 
Yeah. Um, they both worked for a living. I was an only child, which is also very unusual in working class Liverpool. My dad was, you know, Catholic and, and uh, where obviously our family originally are from Ireland, from the Roscommon area of Ireland. Uh, I know this because my uncle, Gerard, um, has researched it. And, and we ended up being in Roscommon one evening. He said, I found out where we're from. We should, we should go and have a look where we're from. So we went to this mm -hmm. little tiny village in Roscommon called Fuerti and waiting for the local historian to come along and to take us through our kind of um, family history. And um, yeah. I was in a pub waiting for him. And I don't drink. Um, I used to. I, I gave up drinking when I was 33. Mm. And um, I was sitting with my uncle and my auntie. It's pouring with rain. And two Irishmen came in, like central casting, a very tall guy and a very short guy, one with curly hair, one with kind of ginger. And um, they looked across and we waved. And they said, what brings you to town? So my uncle said, well, we're looking for our roots. We, we believe the family was from around here. And my original surname was Mulver Hill. Mm. With an H in it and no E on the end. But in the First World War, my grandfather had his name written down in his order book incorrectly in the First World War when he joined the King's Liverpool Regiment and never bothered to correct the uh, recruiting mm. sergeants. So he came out as a Mulville with his brothers and sisters with a different surname and never bothered to change his name back. Strange. Um, yeah. So we're in this pub and the, the tall guy says, oh, you'll want to go and see Bill. Bill is the man for the genealogy in Roscommon Town. And the small guy says, I wouldn't go to see Bill if I were you. So a row <laughs> breaks out between the tall one and the small one about Bill. And the, the small one says, well, why wouldn't you send him to see Bill? And the tall guy says, I don't trust Bill. Bill's smile has all the sincerity of a prostitute's kiss. <laughs> <laughs> so suddenly I'm in a kind of, I'm, I'm in a play, you know. Um, so, uh, yes, we're a very ordinary Liverpool waiting class family. I go to this school, which was a grammar school, and that year I went, it was turned into a comprehensive, but it managed to retain some brilliant teachers. Mm. And I had, a, I had a brilliant teacher called Douglas Cashin, who spotted that I was quite good at Latin. Yeah. So he said, why don't you do ancient Greek? So I thought, okay, I don't know. He said, well, you, in order to do ancient Greek, you'll have to drop chemistry and geography. I said, you had me at chemistry. I'm in. Because <laughs> um, I hated chemistry and I hated geography. And um, so I did ancient Greek and, and Latin and I kind of was good at it. And I just loved the escapism of it, you know, escaping into those strange worlds. Yeah. And then I tagged on ancient history and also I did French for A-levels. So I did four A-levels with a great friend of mine, also an unusually an only child, David Hughes. And we both managed to get places at Cambridge. And then a week before I um, went to Cambridge, I got married. Mm. to my childhood sweetheart and um she she deserved a lot better actually but uh, the poor girl was she came down to cambridge and um and you won't be surprised to hear that that marriage didn't last <laughs> how long did it last well th th we we ended up we ended up getting through cambridge and i came to london and got a job as a porter in lewisham hospital mm. because i couldn't get a job anywhere else it's the only week i signed on i was sharing a house in catford for a tenner a week in 1978 and um wow yeah and i signed on at cafford um uh dss and the, you know you had to go to the desk and the lady asks you details and then she says what kind of work are you looking for i said i'd like to be a film star i said well there's not much call for that round here but they do need porters <laughs> in lewisham hospital 
So off I went for six months. And then I got a call from um, a man called Ian Davidson, who was the script editor at the BBC. And he'd seen me perform in the Cambridge Footlights at the Edinburgh Festival. Mm. And so I had a meeting with him. He was a really nice guy. And he wanted me to write some sketches, which I tried to do very badly. And I approached a friend of mine, Andy Hamilton, who I've worked with for the last 40 odd years. He wrote Drop the Dead Donkey, Outnumbered. It's a brilliant writer. And um, mm. we wrote some sketches and nothing came of it. Um, but I... I did go and see a friend of mine who was then a radio producer. His name was Griff Rees-Jones. And um, he was a radio producer straight out of university. And I went to see one of his shows. And I was in the pub afterwards. And an argument broke out about the show. I didn't like it very much. And this older man, must have been 40, uh, with glasses, was taking me to task. And Griff said to me, that was my boss you were talking to, you idiot. (laughs) And the following day, I went to meet him for lunch. And there was this man, David Hatch. And he called me into his office and said, you had a lot to say for yourself last night. I said, I'm really sorry I had too much to drink. Um, I'm really sorry if I said anything. No, no, no. He said, no, it was very interesting. He said, I've got three writer bursaries. Uh, two of them have been allocated. One to Rory McGrath, one to Guy Jenkins. And I've got one going spur. Do you want to do it? Mm. Now, the thing is, I knew that I wasn't really a writer. But currently, my job description was hospital porter in Lewisham. Yeah. I actually thought being a writer for BBC Radio is a bit nearer to where I want to be. I wanted to be an actor. Mm. So I took the job. A year later, I found myself uh, taking on the role of being a producer as well. So I became a, a writer-producer in BBC Radio. And I stayed there until 1981, 82. Um, and then I got a, um, we, we kind of got promoted or we moved into television with a pilot that we wrote for um, Thames TV which they hated. Uh, it was far too rude for Thames TV, which is very much a family network. But we managed to nick the, the VHS out of the boss's office. He wouldn't give us the VHS. So we broke into his office one night. Rory and I went to the, to the bar at, at Thames TV in Teddington. And Rory had these big hobnailed boots on. He kicked the door in at like half past 10 at night. We nicked the VHS and we took it to Channel 4. that just started. And Channel 4 thought, this, this, sh- this show is mad and it's rude enough for us so we'll do a version of this and so the team that did this pilot then ended up being commissioned to write a series for channel four called who dares wins mm. and who dares interest wins. was um you, you mentioned the the rude um the rudeness of it i'd be interested to know how how that would be interpreted today whether that would be considered still too rude today or or not well do you want me get? Do you want to, me to get onto this so soon? Um, my I, I have views. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. I, I have views about the woke. Yeah, and actually, you know what? We've got a little um, Google document where we write down questions. And as you were saying it, I wrote down to myself, um, "Well, what think of Faulty Towers episodes being deleted? Wokeness, etc." So yeah, please go I ahead. Think it's, I think it's pathetic. I think it's when someone is offended. All they're telling you is they're offended. There is no wider truth. It's a subjective response to something. Mm. Now, I think one has to draw a line to openly hateful, racist, sexist, ageist. I, I get that. But they're not funny. Those remarks are never funny. Mm. If you got, Peter Cook said, if you've got 400 people laughing at your joke, what you know is a good joke. And 400 people, unless they are all members of the Nazi party, but usually 400 people in an audience are a wide cross-section enough 
to give you a balanced view on whether your joke is on the side of the angel or not. If it's mm. not on the side of the angels, it won't get a laugh. If it's on the side of the angels, it will get a laugh. But it'll be an open recognition of some deeper truth. It may be an yeah. uncomfortable truth. It may be an awkward observation. But nevertheless, it may pinch your bottom slightly. But the truth is, a good joke is very healthy. It mm. reduces difficult concepts to a size that we can all laugh at them. And I'm afraid that these poor souls who are hypersensitive, and of course, when someone announces their sensitivity, what they're really saying is, I am a tyrant. You can't upset me. If you upset me, I will destroy you. And that's what's happening now on Twitter. You get these idiots on Twitter who, who, who um, obviously, through their own feelings of wanting to be seen and heard in, an, in a very inordinate way, want to use this expression to cancel people. Yeah. That's, mm. If you think about that, that's totalitarianism. That's to not, take the uh, devil's advocate view for yeah. a moment, so it sounds like your yardstick of uh, whether something's acceptable is whether it's a, a good joke for the majority of an audience. Um, yeah. Surely there must be some jokes that would have gone down very well 30 years ago, but today wouldn't get the same reception with the same cross-section yeah. of people. Um, yeah. sure. Do you think that that can be the case with things like Faulty Towers and eventually what was a great joke in the past will cease to be a good joke? Or do you think that good humour will objectively remain good no matter how long you wait? Well, I think if, for example, you see, Basil Faulty was not the voice piece of John Cleese. He was in a horrendous comic monster who, in order to demonstrate his monstrosity, has to do monstrous things. So you have to be a halfwit to confuse those two things. And what's happening is people are saying, well, that was a racist remark. And you say, well, yes, it is. But the character in the show is racist. So he has to say racist things. You know, till death is due part, there is no network on earth that would have the courage to commission till death as do part or something similar. But the truth is, Johnny Spate, the writer, was a member of the Labour Party and he hated bigots. He hated racism. So he wrote about a florid bigot and racist. Mm. And people laughed at him. Now, there may be people out there who were, didn't see what the joke was and thought that what he was saying was truthful. But they, they are in the minority. I mean, and they are, you know, their knuckles do brush the ground. And clearly, we, you know, we don't need to give them any room to express themselves uh, because they usually express themselves with horrendous kind of received wisdom. Racism, you have to understand, is a mental illness. You know, there's no, there's no, logical, um, there's no logical reason to be racist. It's a mental illness. It's based on high anxiety, fear, unconscious terror of other. So these people need to be educated. And one of the ways of educating them is to mock the very opinions that they hold true, because then it kind of, you're not haranguing them, you're not putting them in prison. You know, when that little kid sent those terrible things on Twitter to Wilfred Zaha, the Crystal Palace um, footballer, yeah. he sent the most horrendously uh, offensive racist cartoons to Wilfred Zaha. He was arrested by the police and Gary Lineker tweeted, this kid's 12, he doesn't need to be incarcerated, he needs to be educated. And that's what I wish would happen is that we would, you know, we'd all come together and, and I mean, for example, at a hat trick at the moment where we're having a conversation about race and it's being coordinated by a company that 
is um, uh, it's a company which is populated by uh, young black professionals who come in and they're opening up a, a, an honest conversation about what people at Attrick feel about race. You know, how do you feel when someone in your company makes a racist joke? Do you feel you can intervene? Do you have to suck it up? You know, those kinds of rather awkward situations that we find ourselves in. And that's what I'd like to promote more is the fact that we, we shouldn't be cancelling people. We should be saying, can you repeat that? Because we're not sure what you mean. Um, and we've had this with, you know, with people I've worked with who've, who've gone on Twitter. Why anybody, by the way, goes on Twitter to have a proper ambivalent argument <laughs> is beyond me. But they do. And what happens is they just get involved in a slanging match, which ends up with, well, in this particular case, this person being to meet. But he found himself just boxed in and began to fight back. And it became about who was right and who was wrong. It wasn't about the issue in the end. It was about who was right and who was wrong. So I do worry about this. I do worry about the kind of the, the wokeness. Um, and, and I think actually there'll be a correction where people will hopefully will wake up and and, and see that we need to have a balance, really. But there's certainly, you're right to say that. Have I got news for you, for example, a show we make? I know that the line over which we can cross is much nearer to us than it used to be. Hmm. When, over what kind of period did that, that be? I well, mean, when, when, well, you start, when, you, when you started it, I mean, has it been pretty much like, has the line been going like that, or has there, there been a few? Um, well, for example, People get the wrong end of the stick with jokes sometimes because they hear half the joke, they they feel offended at the, at the front of the joke. They, they don't they don't hear the end of it. They don't hear the context. And I'll give you an example. We did a, um, this show, Who Dares Wins, and in one of the um, in the very first episode, we did a beautifully shot um, piece, which was remember you might not remember this, but. Back in those days, there was a very famous advertising campaign for a, a cigar named Hamlet, right? Mm. It was a tiny cigar, a cheap cigar. And the logline was, happiness is a cigar named Hamlet. And the adverts always went along the same format. Somebody be walking down the street. In those days, you know, businessman in a bowler hat. He gets caught in the rain. He puts his newspaper over his head. He's very miserable. Then he remembers he has a packet of Hamlet in his pocket. He takes the hamlet out, he lights up, air on the G-string comes into play. Dum, 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 dum. Happiness is a cigar named Hamlet. So, we do this, this um, sketch. It's Jesus Christ up on the cross. He's in his final moments of agony. <clears throat> the music changes from celestial choir to this very gentle air on a G-string. And up on a stick, comes a cigar, right? Audience start laughing because they recognize it's a parody of the advert. Jesus removes one hand, takes a cigar, then realizes he's got nothing to light it with. A second later, another stick comes up with a match on it. Gratefully, he takes his other arm off the thing, lights it up, and is now happily smoking with Hamlet is a cigar named Happiness. He then notices there's nothing keeping him up. And like a figure in a cartoon, he falls out of shot like that. Right? Mm. Now, the, the sketch then went on to pull out from that scene to reveal two advertising people who were signing off on this advert, thinking it was a good advert. And then they went on to discuss 
how they were going to sell the Trident nuclear missile to the British public. Because that week in the newspapers, mm. the government were about to do, launch a massive advertising campaign selling the fact that we should be spending millions of pounds on the Trident missile. Well, to be honest with you, the, the God Squad got as far as Jesus on the cross and stopped watching. What happened was they just, they flooded the complaints line on Channel 4. We ended up on a right to reply program the following week explaining what we were up to. We were demonstrating how tasteless these advertising people were by doing a sketch, by doing an advert involving Jesus Christ on the cross. They didn't get it. They didn't get that you have to often say and do pretty horrible things in order to illuminate what you're trying to say. Mm. And with having got news for you, you know, we've, we've had conversations where, um, you know, we, 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 we were doing a joke about Abu, Abu Hamza, you know, the terrorist with the hook yeah. and the eye. And William Hague was hosting it. And it's a very silly joke where he just said, we hear that Abu Hamza, photograph of Abu Hamza goes up. Abu Hamza um, has been receiving some help from Osama bin Laden this week. The rumor is it's to do up his shoelaces, right? So it's a stupid joke about a guy with a hook. Now the truth is, he doesn't need to have a hook. He can have a prosthetic hand. But part of his brand to scare everybody is he wants to look like some kind of strange pirate. And the note I got from the BBC executive was, we can't have that joke, it's disabledist. Right. I said, it's not disabledist, it's a joke against Abu Hamza. And he's one of the most hated men in Britain. Mm. Who's gonna complain? But there's the, that concern about, and I'd have been happy to explain to anybody who rang in who was disabled, what the purpose of our joke was. It wasn't to mock the disabled, right? So. I think the fear in broadcasters of giving offence to anybody now is cramping creativity. Yeah, it must, well, it must be quite, um, mean, means there's quite a line for you to, to walk. Um, does that, how, how does, how's that impacted your, um, your business and kind of, I guess, what you want to do with, with your comedies? Obviously, that, that's one example. Um, well, we, what we do is we just do what we think is right and then we have the battles as they arrive. You know, we don't, we don't live vicariously by thinking not worth putting that in they'll cut it out because if we think it's yeah. again if you can bet on yourself and think actually your joke is correct and your joke is actually it's on the right side of the angel is it you know it's it's not putting the boot into people who you know are the underdog if you punch up with jokes i think you're on you're on a pretty safe side you know on ha if you watch any episode of have got news for you if you watch the twitter feed you have 50-50, you have 50% of the people saying, you're just a bunch of left-wing communists, you hate the Tory government and, you know, why are we paying the licensee for this? And the other half of them are saying, you're just a bunch of Tory boys, you're always putting the boot into Jeremy Corbyn. And so I think we're always doing a good job when we're pissing people off in equal measure, left and right. Um, but, you know, there, there, is no, there is no question that if you talk to people in, in comedy, um, um, and in terms of political comedy as well, is that there, there, there is a worry that if you cause offence, then there's no, there's no way of dealing with it. Once the offence is out there, it can become very destructive because of social media. Mm. You know, people, who, people who cause offence now, like I said, they can be cancelled. Yeah. And 
the BBC are worried about it. I know the Channel 4 worry about it. They, they all are, they're all worried about it. I'm not blaming them. It's the culture in which we live. But I'm just hoping there'll be a correction where we'll, we'll wake up from this dream where, you know, apparently now you have universities that won't have people come. As, when I was at university, we loved having, you know, some right-wing lunatic coming to talk to us because we'd have a row with them. Yeah. At the Cambridge Union, you'd have people screaming and shouting and, it was great. That's what it was there for. But now apparently no platforming is, let's not even hear them because if I hear this and it goes in my ears, I don't feel safe anymore. Mm. What's as, that about? <laughs> um, if I may, Jimmy, I'm going to lead us on to another topic as, as you yeah. know, we are a, a business podcast and that is clearly an issue that's um, been very important to you and very important to the business. But um, there are a couple of things I'd like to talk about more onto sure. that angle. Um, one thing is when you were talking about how you first got into this game, uh, the story involves a lot of well-known celebrities, the Cambridge Footlights, you know, the BBC. Is it possible for anyone to go in and start up a TV production company or do you kind of need to already be in that world? No, I, I, and I think since then, of course, people have set up production companies and they haven't come down that route. Um, I think we, we all t turned up in the 80s and... Um, Margaret Thatcher unleashed this kind of um, this kind of energy into the marketplace by telling ITV and BBC you have to take twenty five percent from independent producers, thereby creating a need. And they hated it. ITV and BBC hated that, and they tried to push those commissions to the fringes of their network. Well, now if you look at the at the um, at the business, independent production. Um, probably provides more than 50% to BBC and ITV now, and in, in big genres like drama and entertainment. Um, so I don't, think you, I don't think for a minute that you have to have a kind of, um, you know, that kind of pathway of coming from Oxbridge through the footlights into, um, I know people who run very successful independent production companies who didn't get down that route. I think what you need, what you do need is you need a good idea, mm. We set up Patrick in order to do one show. And we thought, once that show's done, we'll go and do something else. So literally, it wasn't, there was no business plan. There was no investment. Mm. We didn't go to the city and say, do you want to invest with, you know, very bright 29-year-olds. We're going to create this kind of um, company. We just wanted to do this show on our own and take control of it. And then I got, I got asked to take part in a show called Whose Line Is It Anyway? on the radio, it was a radio show. And I was terrible in it. Um, I was in it with Lenny Henry and Stephen Fry and John Sessions and they were brilliant and I was hopeless. But with my producer's hat on, I noticed it was a really good show. And I asked the producer whether that he'd pitched to television. And he said, yes, he pitched to the BBC six months ago, but they hadn't got back to them, which is, you know, in those days was par for the course. Um, I said, well, Channel 4 are looking for new stuff because they're a new channel. Should I bring them down next week? Because I know them there. Next week, I brought Channel 4 down. They saw the radio version, which actually doesn't differ that much from the TV version. And that was our first. Now, at that point, we launched Who's Line. I was in a restaurant, and I overheard someone talking about it. And I thought, oh, my God, we've got a hit on our hands. And then we got a return commission. So we got a mm. second commission to do that. And then we did Have I Got News For You. And that got a, a repeat commission. And suddenly, we had a business. Mm. Yeah. So would you so describe it? In my business, I'll repeat commissions. Mm. So would you describe yourself in that context as a bit of an accidental entrepreneur then? 
totally. Yeah. Um, if, and if, if you'd said to anybody in the 1980s that I, I'd be running Hattrick Productions 30 years later, they would have thought you were completely mad. Someone said, yeah. at our 30th birthday party, Andy Hamilton said, you know, it's really great, you know, that we're 30 years old. And I've got to say, I'm really surprised because in the 1980s, Jimmy's entrepreneurial and leadership skills didn't really jump out at you. Jimmy used to jump out at you because I, um, I used to like a drink in, in those days and um, would get rather overexcited. No, it was, there was no plan. There was no plan. It was, it was accidental. It was born out of impatience, born out of you know, resenting that there was older people who were getting in our way. It was the classic kind of trope of a bunch of young people who were ignorant of what the pitfalls were and just jumping off a cliff. Mm-hmm. It's interesting hearing you say that story. Like you're saying, there wasn't a business plan. You were just creating something that you thought was really, really good. And the business was almost secondary to that. Um, I'll be really interested because we think of TV almost as this kind of art form rather than a business, which is why what makes it such an interesting business model in some way. Do you, is that actually how you see it in the, in the day-to-day when you're creating something new? Are you thinking about the critics? Are you thinking about the viewers? Or are you also thinking about how it's going to generate repeat commissions and the money? Like, is that seen as an important part of the job or is that almost seen as a bit of a grubby side product? Well, the thing is, you know, we actually, believe it or not, we have, we have a mission statement at Hadrian. And we formulated it in uh, two years after we were in business when a friend of mine who was a management consultant said, I'll give you a free day why didn't I come down and do some sessions with you? And we, were, we laughed, thinking, what, why in the world are you on? But actually, it was quite illuminating about, you know, which, which there were only four of us in the company, so what roles we were all taking. And at the end of the day, he said, every company needs a mission statement. And again, we said, go to hell. We don't have a mission statement. It sounds too corporate. But he made us think about it, and we came up with a mission statement in those days, which we changed slightly. We changed the word television to content. So it's basically, Patrick creates quality content for profit. Now that, in those days, was quite extraordinary because networks, when you were a young independent production company, they were rather patronizing. And they thought just by giving you the commission was enough. The fact you want to make any money out of it Mm. was actually rather distasteful. And there was the situation we had in the early 90s. We heard Channel 4 was going to impose sponsorship on whose line is it anyway. We weren't told about it. We'd heard about it. So we rang up and we found out it was true. We had a meeting with the late Andrea Wonfor, who's a really wonderful woman, and a man called Stuart Butterfield, who was then the new head of sales at Channel 4 from the advertising world, and a bit of a bruiser. So we sat there and they explained very carefully that, yes, they were going to have sponsorship imposed on Channel 4, on whose line, is anyway, because it was one of their most successful programs. And we said, well, who's getting the money? And they were shocked. It was, like, it was like I'd taken a shit on their carpet. <laughs> they were, inc- you know what it was? They were quite disappointed in, in us. Oh, we thought, oh really, you're, you're concerned about the money? So well, a lot of our fans will think we're selling out if we're, if we're flogging Heineken at the beginning of the show. So if we're gonna sell out, we would actually like to sell out yeah. and make some fucking money out of it. Um, and control it. You know, we're not children, we're not students. Anyway, um, we got into a row and Stuart Butterfield obviously had just grown tired of the whole thing with these four 
lunatics. Um, and he came from the real world of advertising. And he said, listen, we can just impose this on you. We don't need to ask your permission. And again, it's one of those things where, you know, you alluded to it, you know, in terms of it as a bit, does TV defy a business model? Well, TV as a business is an odd thing because a lot of people escape into television not wanting to be in business. They want to be a play, right? And I would say that play is very important in business because it's, it's muscular. You know, if you're playing with purpose, you can create interesting things. And um, so he made this play, this kind of real world, I can impose this on you. You know, a kind of, it was a kind of mafia moment. And then we said, but how can you impose a sponsorship on a show that doesn't exist? He said, what do you mean? I said, well, we'll just stop making the show for you. <laughs> and they said, you wouldn't dare. Now in those days, we would dare. These days, 30 years later, I'm not so sure I've got the nerve anymore. <laughs> but in those days, we would have just said, you know what, screw it. We're not making any more who's lying for you and to, and to hell with you. And I, I hope if that situation arose again, we'd, we'd have the balls to do it. But I'm not sure we would. I, I've made quite a few big mistakes, you know, over the years out of fear of, of losing the commission. And I've made the wrong creative decision in order to please the broadcaster, to keep the commission on the road. And in the end, I've meticulously planned a failure. Hmm. Um, do you think you're a good businessman then? Not you obviously, that wasn't, no, you're not particularly. I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not a good business. I have very good business people with me. Yeah. So um, ITV um, wanted to buy Hattrick uh, about I don't know, eight or nine years ago. And this guy um, said to me, and my business partner, Denise Donahue basically was the genius who set up Patrick in 85, 86. She was my girlfriend who then became my wife, who then became my future ex-wife and then my ex-wife. And then she stayed as my business partner. And then she left the business in 2008. And we're still really good friends. But she was running ITV Studios. And the head of M&A at ITV, she and I are both in the room together. And uh, he said, what's it like running Patrick on your own now? And it was a kind of unpleasant question because she's in the room with me. So what am I going to say? Better? Worse? And it made me think about what the real answer was. And of course, the real answer was, which is why I said to him, was I don't want Hattrick. The people I'm with, my commercial director, my, my financial director, my head of resources, they run Hattrick. I said, I lead Hattrick. Mm. And that's a very different job. And their job is to make sure I don't lead Hattrick into the jaws of hell, which I'm quite capable of doing. Because I can have, I'm not comparing myself to Winston Churchill, but they said of Winston Churchill, who's also a bit of a lunatic, they said he had 10 ideas a day, and one of them was fantastic. He just didn't know which one it was. And so I think, you know, people who, who are the, if you like, the people who lead independent production companies, certainly the ones who, that are still, are truly independent, um, are not, um, they, they're an odd mix. You very rarely get the, the creative businessman along with the, the strategic businessman. Yeah. Uh, so I, I need other people to run the business with. It's a collegiate activity and I fulfill one function. I would say my main function is new business. I'm always looking for new ideas yeah. and I'm very impatient about getting ideas off the ground. So there's yeah. an impatience at Hattrick, which I think is a good thing, but it's surrounded by people who are, precise um, they're keen on delivering they're structured um, and I'm none of those things mm. 
Um, and um, are you, I think, I think I read an interview you did possibly with The Guardian, possibly with The Evening Standard, that you, um, that you previously, when you started the business, um, I think they, they categorised you. I'm not sure whether you'd categorise yourself as being an alcoholic at the time. I was, um, a, I was an alcoholic and I, I was a, uh, an alcoholic and a cocaine addict. Cocaine addict. And um, I, I drifted into, uh, I was um, producing a show called A Last Smith and Jones, which is with Mel Smith and Griffith Jones. And Mel Smith, who died uh, a few years ago, <clears throat> Mel and I um, spent many evenings. He introduced me to the, to the delights of cocaine when I was in my early 20s. And it wiped me out. By the time I was 33, I was being helped into a rehab in the home counties. And, uh, and that was 31 years ago. And, um, and I've been clean and sober ever since. And I, I attend um, self-help meetings and that's kept me on the straight and narrow. Um, so that's been, you know, in a way, um, getting sober and getting into a recovery cleared my head. And it, it also allowed me to drop the acting thing because I was an actor uh, throughout the 80s. Mm. And it was quite distracting because I always wanted to be an actor. But when I hit, um, I did a play at the National Theatre, which kind of cured me of wanting to be an actor. <coughs> um, <laughs> nothing to do with the play. I just didn't like the idea of doing the same thing every night. And I was probably, I was about 36, 37. And I thought to myself, can you look ahead down this road and see yourself being an actor when you're 55, 60? I thought I really couldn't. And of course, mm. as I said, I'd begun my life as a producer, even though I didn't really want to be a producer. And I'd enjoyed it. And we'd set up Patrick, it was 1992. Patrick had been in business for uh, six years, seven years. We were doing quite well. And I thought I will commit myself fully to this business. And that was a commitment I made 28 years ago. Um, and never regretted it. You know. I was in my late 30s, about to enter my 40s, and I, it took me that long to discover why I was here. You know, what, what was my role? Where, where should I sit? And I realized I should sit at, at Hattrick and help other people to develop their ideas. Because I'd been a bit of an actor and a bit of a writer, it helped me to empathize with people <clears throat> who were writers and actors. Because I knew what it was like to be an actor and a writer, and how vulnerable you can feel when you hand your script in and how vulnerable you feel when you've just done a take on a, on a show. And so there's no question that those kind of, the years I spent in the eighties being an actor and writer helped me enormously in my job as a producer. Hmm. Fascinating. I think that's actually one of the, the things that people really value about um, these stories is we try and bring out not just the, the glory story and um, that the version that you want to tell the press and everybody tells in hindsight, but it's really interesting to hear those, uh, the ups and the downs. Um, do you have any moments now that you'd look on and say like, these are the, the hardest times or well, yeah. is there... We had a situation where we, we sold the company in, 19, in 2002 um, and I just had a brief brush with throat cancer, which fortunately they managed to er eradicate. But during that time, we were also engaged in selling the business to a, a private equity company. Very nice guys called August Equity. They had been called Kleinmore Benson. And then they changed their name. They announced at one board meeting, they said, we're, um, we're going to be called August. I said, okay. I said, you sure it's not August? <laughs> Um, being a classicist, they said, "What?" I said, "Well, you can pronounce it either way." And they, oh, uh, <laughs> it kind of caused a bit of confusion of what they. But they were really nice guys. But as you said before at the beginning of this, you know, 
as a business model, it's quite baffling because it's not linear. And of course, these guys get on the bus and they want to see the bus go up the hill to a different destination and then sell the bus at a much higher price. Well, our first board meeting, and they bought 49% of the company. And, you know, Denise and I were paid a lot of money. We trousered the money. Uh, but of course, we paid the mortgage off on our houses and put a mortgage right in the middle of our business. Because as you guys know better than me, you start paying that money back to the people who bought you, bought you they buy you with your own debt. And um, it was an unmitigated disaster. And um, it was the most frightening period of my life because what happened in the succeeding two years after the sale, we lost four of our big shows. So our earnings went like this. Our earnings went south mm. and, uh, and we had to pay, you know, interest to Barclays Bank. And, um, <clears throat> one of our shows got canceled in America. We had a show in America that was about to go on air called the Ortegas. And the Ortegas was an American version of a show we did called the Kumars. And the Kumars was an Indian talk show we did here with Sanjeev Bhaskar and Mira Sayal. And it was guaranteed to go on air. We were going to make a lot of money, seven figure sum. And it got canceled before it went on air. They decided they didn't want to show it. And I had to go to my first board meeting and say to these bankers, we're not going to have the income stream that we thought we were going to have. And they thought I was joking because don't forget, I'm supposed to be the funny guy. And they think I'm telling a kind of joke. And then they realize I'm not joking. At the end of the meeting, um, one of their number, very nice guy, who was the kind of senior guy there, Andrew Hartley, said, uh, God, he said, it's a really frightening business, isn't it? He said, is there anything we can do to kind of offset these kind of situations and make it a bit smoother? I said, well, I was thinking of having the seats in your, on your side of the boardroom table fitted with belts so you can strap yourself in. I said, because this is, this is not a business which goes in a straight line. It's mm. up and down. And that's what happened. And what happened was um, by 2000 and... Um, I, you know, I was in recession long before the world was in recession. I was in recession by 2006. We could not pay our debts. And I was put into the euphemistically named support area of Barclays Bank. And I had this man come around, or Eddie Dempsey, who would come around and he would go through my development slate. I had a banker coming in and going through my development slate, asking me questions about my products and saying, this situation comedy you're doing outnumbered, is it any good? I said, well, yeah, I think it's pretty good. Will it make any money? I said, well, if it works, it'll make some money, but if it doesn't, it won't. And he was trying to, he was trying to find certainty in a very uncertain world. And I understand why he's trying to find certainty. But in the end, I said to him, look, this is pointless. What you need to do is go home and pray to whatever God you believe in that I don't drop dead of a heart attack tonight. Because if I do, you don't stand any chance of getting your money back ever. And of course, I then got into a, a, a fight with the bank. Not really a fight, but we had a, a disagreement of how to resolve it. And how they wanted to resolve it was this. They wanted to sell Hattrick, lock, stock and barrel. And they would just about get out with a washed face. I, on the other hand, would be stuck in the company, running my company as an employee. I didn't want to do that. Mm. So <clears throat> um, we got into a little bit of a tangle. And then out of the... I kid you, know, this, you, if you wrote this in a, in a show, they'd say, this bit's unbelievable. You can't, you can't do this bit. It looks too much deus ex machina. But what happened was we made an investment in a company called 12 Yard run by a very brilliant guy called David Young. 
who created the weakest link. And David had been a runner at Hattrick when he was 19, and he'd gone on over the, last, over the, the succeeding 20 years to build a fantastic career as a format creator. And we set him up in business, and he came to see me. Denise had left the business by then. She, she'd had enough and wanted to do other things. And um, he said, I want to sell my 50% of the company. Will you buy it off me so I can stay and work with you? And I said, David, to my shame, if you cost more than £4.99, I'm not going to be able to afford you. I'm in a massive amount of debt, and it looks like I'm going to go under. And so we decided we put the 50% together, and we'd go into the market, and we would sell 12 yards to a third party. And ITV Studios, run by Dawn Airy, and it was one of her many jobs she did. Um, she, um, she was there, God bless her. She bought 12 yards for 35 million quid. And the 50% of that allowed me to buy myself out of the arrangement with the bank. I paid off the senior debt. I paid off their loan. They got a tiny bit of upside so they could show that there was a, a plus in the, in, in the books. And they left the business. And that was 2008. And um, I then rang up a friend of mine who's the Arsenal team psychologist. And I said, I think I'm in a crisis. Um, I'm no longer going to go bankrupt, but I literally don't know what to do. And he said, great, we don't waste a crisis in my business. So we, he came around and we worked for six months with everybody. We talked to everybody in the business and uh, we built the company back up again. And this year, we actually made more money this year in lockdown than we did last year. And next year, we're looking to probably increase profits by about 30%. And that's because I announced to everybody, we weren't going to worry about money. We're going to worry about the product. We're going to worry about programs. And if you make a great program, there's enough money for everybody. Yeah. So, um, so how does, so, um, sorry, I was just going to say, how does coronavirus affect that? Um, it must, it must have disrupted things. Well, God bless the BBC. Know. They put Have I Got News to you on the essential list of programming. Mm. So we managed to, you know, to plow on through with mixed results. I thought some shows were pretty good. Some shows are a bit creaky at the beginning, but you know, I don't mind those situations. I think you learn such an enormous amount. And what I learned was the team working on Have I Got News For You is pretty brilliant because they were so resourceful. I mean, they would do a recording of Have I Got News For You on Zoom like this, where the producer would have five screens of the host and the two teams. And they play the, you know, they play the rounds. And then out of that, it would take them two days to edit a program. Um, but we stayed on the air. And uh, that was very helpful financially. Um, I, have two, I have some other companies that I co-own. One is Livewire which is run by the brilliant Guy Freeman, who is a big t live TV event pr producer. And he's producing the proms for us. And they've managed to salvage a couple of weeks of the proms. So we're actually doing the proms. Um, and I set up in business with a Jed Mercurio uh, three years ago to produce long running dramas. You know, Jed wrote Line of Duty and The Bodyguard. And uh, we managed to just film our first series of BBC One the day before we went into lockdown, we racked. And actually, half the crew got coronavirus the following week. It was an amazing timing. Because then what we could do during lockdown, we could edit the program remotely like this. We'd have meetings like this about, about the edits. You don't need to be in large groups of people to edit the program. And so we were very fortunate that we got quite a few of our big shows away before lockdown. And have I got news to you, we managed to produce during lockdown. And of course, we have a 30-odd-year-old catalogue of finished programming 
And what people wanted was to buy catalogue this year. They wanted to buy, you know, back catalogue because they needed to fill their slots. Mm. So our international sales went shooting up this year. So, you know, we had a silver lining. I mean, we didn't produce um, three big, we had two big dramas we were about to produce. They've been pushed into next year. We had um, uh, a comedy, Derry Girls, we were about to produce. That's in next year. So next year's looking pretty full anyway, before we've even started. So that's why I'm pretty confident about next year being um, probably uh, between 25 and 30% up on this year. Yeah, okay. Um, we don't think we've got too many more questions. We have a little quick fire round, which we do, but Dan, yeah. did you have any more specific questions that you wanted to ask? Um, yeah, just one final one I'll be interested in. Turning to the future, uh, one thing that seems to be making a lot of noise and generating a lot of hype at the moment is this shift to content on demand and Netflix or iPlayer or whatever yeah. it is. Um, how much difference do you think that's going to make for producers like yourself? It's just more people to sell to. I think it's a great idea. I think, I think that um, you know, the only thing doing deals with Netflix and Amazon is that they want to buy the whole thing. So you have very little tail yeah, there's no there's no back end i mean when we did a show called episodes for the bbc and for showtime in america matt leblanc was starring in it we were able, able to sell that to 200 countries and all the countries in the world wanted it because matt leblanc is the mo one of the most famous people in the world so and it was a really good show um so there's an upside to netflix and amazon is they they're a big buyer they buy lots of stuff and they buy big shows from a business model point of view, you don't exclusively want to deal with them because you do want to also work with networks where you can retain your rights. And if you're a, a distributor like we are, you need to have rights. You need to hold IP. Mm. Um, you mentioned uh, Matt LeBlanc there. I just wondered, um, do you, do you, how closely do you work with all of these, all of these people like him? I mean, is, that, is he someone that, that you deal with or do you... Um, is, yeah. No, I, 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 uh, I very much am at the part of the, certainly at the beginning of a show, I will be very involved. Um, and on, uh, on episodes, because I loved it so much, and I loved the writers, David Crone and Jeffrey Clarex, and it was one of the happiest working experiences of my life, in fact, that mm. we did it, you know, I was there most days. And so we got to know each other really, really well. And, um, and it was one of those shows, because it was a big co-production for the BBC and Showtime, I wanted to make sure it was good because I wanted also to lay down a template for further co-productions because as a producer, if I can get a big network in the UK and a big network in the US to come together and fund something, I get more to play with. So I can do a bigger production. So have I got, um, if you think the average sitcom in, in Britain costs about 300,000, 350 um, episodes because it had Showtime and the BBC was somewhere 750, 800. Mm. So it could look really great. You know, we could actually make it look like a million dollars because it costs yeah. a million dollars. Yeah. Um, just with that in mind, um, you obviously must know a lot of celebrities. I just wondered um, who is the nicest um, celebrity, you know, or like the one, the one, if you had to name one celebrity that, you know, that's just extremely down to earth and surprisingly very nice and down to earth, who would you say? Well, to be honest, is it, it's a myth about our business that it's full of arseholes and it's not actually. In fact, the arseholes don't really work that often because there's too many good people around. Um, um, I've recently worked with Martin Clunes. I, I, I met Martin when he was about 26. We were in a play together at the Hampstead Theatre 
Right. And uh, we had a big crush on each other, and I and that's never gone away. He is one of the nicest people I know, um, and and one of the biggest stars. And they can go hand in hand. You know, that's the truth. Is that it's a myth, often perpetrated by the media, who can be right. pretty loathsome on occasion, um, in terms of painting painting people in 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 colours that don't really match. Uh, and who are the assholes? Well, <laughs> to, to, to be honest, I, I try and keep Hattrick as an asshole-free environment. So I don't know many anymore. Um, I have a list, but uh, uh, my, it's a list entitled Life's Too Short, literally. It sounds like what you're saying, Jimmy, the assholes are the journalists like Will who try and uh, write off all the film stars. Not really. I think that <laughs> I, 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 um, I, I always talk to journalists because I actually think it's better you tell them what's going on than actually make it up as they go along. So um, I've just read a book, Will, called Factfulness. Have you read this book? I haven't read it yet. No, it's on my list. It's really good. My kid read it. He's 16. The school said, read it over the summer and read it with your parents. So we read it together. It's very heartening. And of course, he makes the point that, you know, journalists can't sell anything based on the fact that everything seems to be getting better. Um, you know, one bad things are happening and journalists have a, have a job to, to illuminate that. No, I think that, I think that celebrities have an unholy, you know, relationship with the media. They, some, some celebrities live in the media and some choose not to. And some of the most successful celebrities choose not to, and they have very good Rowan Atkinson was a classic example of a man incredibly private but the most successful comedian of his generation so. mm. okay brilliant um jimmy i think we've um we we're nearly at the end we just want to have uh, we just do a couple of quick fire questions at okay. the end um so mainly one or two word answers probably in most cases um do you prefer boris johnson or donald trump oh my god that's like asking me if you want to go to the dentist or get your appendix out i think i prefer boris johnson on the grounds that um, he did do Have I Got News to You very well for us. And uh, he, yeah. he has got quite a good sense of humour. And he, you know, and he needs it, given the job he's doing as Prime Minister. But, um, so I think on, on balance, yeah, you know what? Had you said you've got two choices, either A, Donald Trump, I would have said B, without knowing who it was. Yeah, okay. Um, do you prefer coffee or tea? Actually, coffee in the morning, tea in the afternoon. So it depends when you ask me. Same. Favourite music? Beatles. Scouser. Favourite book? Oh, my God. Uh, there's a book called When Nietzsche Wept by Irvin Dion, which kind of haunts me. Um, but anything by P.G. Woodhouse. Okay. Oh, and going back to your Beatles answer, you don't have much of a Liverpudlian accent. Did you used I to? Don't. Have you, have you I don't. I used to have a very strong Liverpool accent. I got yeah. to Cambridge and I began to audition for plays and I couldn't understand a word I was saying. Yeah. So I began do you, to do you still, slow down. Do you still pick it up when you, when yeah. you go back to Liverpool? When I'm watching my, my team, Everton, get thrashed, it all comes out. Can you give oh, us a line? Oh, referee, what are you doing? Yeah, yeah. thanks. Uh, Favourite sport? Football, is it? Football. Everton. Yeah. Uh, I read um, in, I can't remember where I read it in, as part of my research, that so you hold a few shares in Everton, is that right? I do. It's an emotional thing. Bill Kenwright yeah. rang me in 2002. I was in Los Angeles, actually. He said, I'm putting together a consortium to buy this chairman out. We had a terrible chairman called Peter Johnson. He was driving the club over. He was a Liverpool fan. 
He bought Everton because he couldn't buy Liverpool. And at one derby game, imagine this, at a derby game, Everton were bouncing on the bottom of the Premier League for like three or four years. At one derby game, a Liverpool fan held aloft a sign saying, Agent Johnson, mission accomplished. Um, anyway, so I chipped in with not a lot of money. Um, so I am technically a shareholder in Everton still, yeah. yeah. Um, your favourite film? Oh my God, my favourite film. Um, well, I would, my mind goes into a gridlock. I, because I have kids, I've tried to introduce them to, you know, to films over the years. And um, we went away to Japan on a holiday and I just downloaded two films. I'd liked Japan, but I didn't, wasn't in love with Japan. And so um, my favourite time in Japan, we spent the evening in our hotel room and we watched Inherit the Wind, which is a film, uh, Spencer Tracy. And then we watched Spartacus, um, two very different films, uh, the Kubrick film. Um, but I think that uh, in terms of uh, favourite films, I have to say, uh, I think anything with Dustin Hoffman, I'm working with Dustin Hoffman at the moment. And um, anything with Dustin Hoffman, in it, I think, he, I don't think he's made a bad film. Okay. Um, what's your favourite ever Have I Got News For You host? Oh, my God. Well, Angus Deaton was very good. Okay. And I have to say, he did a fantastic job. Um, and there have been so many, uh, you know. Uh, it would be invidious of me to single one of them out. Is that too, po is that too much of a politician for you? Um, no, no, that's fine. I do, I have to say, I, I mean, I think, you know, Victoria Cora Mitchell does a great job for us, Alexander Armstrong. Jeremy Clarks is always a good turn, you know, uh, Stephen Mang. We have a lot of actors come on, Stephen Mangan, Damian Lewis, David Tennant um, comes on, Joe Brand. We've had, uh, we've been blessed actually. I mean, having to get rid of, you know, have, Angus leaving the show was a terrible moment for us because that was a perilous moment of enforced change, which is another discussion we could have had about businesses. The amount of time where enforced change makes a business take a decision which can, is high in risk. And, you know, having a rotating host on Have A Good News For You, everybody thought it was going to fail. And mm -hmm. of course, that's the other private pleasure you have running a business is proving people wrong. Yeah. Um, and just finally, I, um, I noticed that in 2003, the Evening Standard labeled you a failed comic. Yes. That's a fair, fair label. Yeah, no, we, 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 we have a joke in our house. It was when we sold, we sold Hattrick for 20, 50% of it we sold for 23 million quid. So I knew I was on a loser with this evening standard journalist when he came into Hattrick and took his bicycle clips off. Right? I thought, this guy's not going to like the fact I just made all this money. So he sat down and he said, um, will the money change? I said, well, no, I've been, I've been okay for a while. I've been running a successful TV business. I've been comfortable for a, quite a while, thank you. But he was very mealy-mouthed. And The Guardian interviewed me the following day and said, I saw the Evening Standard headline. What do you make of it? I said, well, it made me laugh. I said, it, you know, you can rely on the Evening Standard. It will snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. <laughs> um, but my kids, uh, I'm, I'm known in the house as, a, as the failed, failed comedian. I tell them it's very <laughs> important to fail at things because then you'll find out what you're reasonably good at. Yeah. Do you think you're funny? Um, oh, there's mine. <laughs> um, I, on, on occasion, yeah. on occasion, I've known to raise a laugh, but uh, I'm not a professional comic, no. I mean, I admire them, but 
they're a strange breed. Yeah. Okay, brilliant. Well, thank you very much, Jimmy. I think that's probably everything we wanted to ask. That's all right, guys. Um, thank you. So I really appreciate it. Appreciate the um, the quick time recording as well. So if you could, um, yes, uh, I, I will. Email, so are, able, are, are you both based in Vancouver? No, mm. just me. Dan's in London. Yep. Why are you in Vancouver? Um, I moved here because I got a two-year working visa, and um, it's a nice place to move to. It's a bit uh, clean for me, Vancouver. It is clean. Yeah. Well, bit, most of it. It's a bit weirdly clean. I want some. I, I want to into Vancouver by seaplane from Vancouver Island in mm. 1990. And two things I noticed, it was very clean, and I went to the loo, and I began peeing blood. And um, I had to go to see a doctor, I thought I was dying, but it was bright red, and he said to me, no, you burst a blood vessel in your penis. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I'll leave you with that memory of... <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a kind of reworking of a Tony Bennett song, I burst my penis in Vancouver, because I left my heart in San Francisco. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's I don't know why they called you the failed comic. I think that was a great line. <laughs> <laughs>